Our road to walk then and now is copyright protected. It may not be used or sampled without the owner's written permission. Welcome to Our Road to Walk Then and Now, a podcast brought to you from Warren County, North Carolina. It's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. I'm Deborah Ferruccio. And I'm Ken Ferruccio. In our last episode, Governor Hunt told delegates that the EPA wouldn't approve the state's plan to bury the roadside PCBs in Warren County if the plan posed an unreasonable risk. But we knew the plan wasn't scientifically sound. The state was requesting that the EPA waive three of five critical regulations. What's more, our independent scientist, Dr. Charles Malkai, who was a soil scientist from the University of Maryland, had testified just two weeks earlier that the site had unsuitable soils and groundwater would be perilously close, only seven feet at best from the bottom of the landfill. And the landfill couldn't be made safe with engineering technology. While we're eager to continue with our historical narrative, we couldn't ignore current pressing environmental issues, so we told our listeners that in this new episode 16, we'd break from our documented Warren County PCB history of events as they unfolded. We decided we'd fast forward to the present because of the horrific February 3, 2023 East Palestine, Ohio train wreck that's been termed an epic chemical disaster. This situation is developing and ongoing, and in this podcast, we're discussing information that is publicly available at this point in time. As many of you know, the disaster occurred when Norfolk Southern's railroad single-car brake system failed, causing the train to derail and to spill thousands of gallons of toxic vinyl chloride and other chemicals that were then deliberately burned in order to avoid an uncontrolled explosion. But in attempting to avert an explosive disaster, they created another. The graphic plumes of black chemical smoke billowing from the so-called controlled burn spread across the East Palestine area and far beyond, and the environmental and health impacts are presently unknown. But the images are now indelibly etched into the public's mind's eye and are bringing attention to the many chemicals that are produced, transported, used, and disposed of every day that leach into our water, disperse in our air, and bioaccumulate in our bodies. This East Palestine disaster is a wake-up call for us all. The public is alarmed at how horrific this chemical disaster is. They're alarmed at what the ramifications of the train derailment are and will be, not only for the people of East Palestine and the area, but for everywhere. For example, my sister Betsy from Columbus, Ohio, reminded me that she lives very close to a railroad that is busily used every day. I wonder what does go through here, she said to me. I never thought about it before East Palestine. I guess I just assumed that EPA is protecting us from dangerous chemicals and that railroads follow safety requirements. About two weeks after the train derailment, Norfolk Southern President and CEO Alan Shaw said in a message to the residents of East Palestine, We are here and will stay here for as long as it takes to ensure your safety and to help East Palestine recover and thrive. A few days earlier, EPA Administrator Michael Regan assured residents of the area that the air was safe to breathe and the water in East Palestine was fit for drinking. But on what does Mr. Regan base this assurance to East Palestine residents that their air and water are safe? And when he asked residents to trust the government, why should they? 
Why isn't Mr. Regan considering research by University of Pennsylvania Dr. Julian Breyer, who has spent her life studying the effects of vinyl chloride and who said on Pittsburgh WPXI News, we don't really know what the concentrations are that may cause long-term risks. To me, what's more of concern, even if the concentrations are considered safe? Are they really? When Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was asked if he would drink the water in East Palestine, he said that if he were there, absolutely he would drink it. When Dr. Byer was asked if she would drink water from East Palestine, she said, absolutely not. Dr. Byer is concerned that vinyl chloride can contaminate groundwater in wells and be transported into homes in tap water. At room temperature, vinyl chloride gas will come out of the water and go back into the air, and that's really the major route of toxicity for the liver. Mr. Regan said the water in East Palestine is safe, but did he mention to residents that according to the National Cancer Institute, if a water supply is contaminated, vinyl chloride can enter household air when the water is used for showering, cooking, or laundry? Did Mr. Regan mention that the EPA has concluded that vinyl chloride is carcinogenic to humans by the inhalation and oral routes of exposure, and that it is highly likely to be cancer-causing by exposure to skin? Dr. Byer also said that when you inhale vinyl chloride, it combines with your DNA and leads to cancer and other health impacts. From her research studies, Dr. Byer found that when mice were subjected with safe levels of vinyl chloride over a period of time, the studies determined that 100% of the subjects developed tumors and that vinyl chloride affected the breathing of the mice. And the researchers saw effects as early as three weeks of exposure. She said there is not enough human research to gauge what level of exposures are safe, but high levels are known to cause liver cancer. She said the low concentrations are a little more tricky. They may have no symptoms. It's all silent, and it develops silently over a long period of time. Dr. Bias says no government officials have reached out to her for insight into the chemical, but she would welcome the opportunity to collaborate and even study samples. That's because vinyl chloride is a significant environmental health threat because thousands of pounds of the chemical are released every year. Dr. Byer, who works with Pittsburgh Public Health and the Pittsburgh Liver Research Center, says the whole vinyl chloride story is absolutely, absolutely understudied and definitely needs more investigation. Clearly, EPA Administrator Regan's assurance that East Palestine air and water are safe does not reflect the studies of a leading expert who has spent her life studying the effects of vinyl chloride. So, if EPA doesn't consider all the evidence, how can EPA Administrator Regan pledge to, quote, restore scientific integrity to the EPA and say that he's committed to ensuring that every single decision the EPA makes meets rigorous scientific standards? President Shaw says that Norfolk Southern is working to address the worries residents have about water quality, loss of property value, and adverse health down the road. In the meantime, the company touts on its website things it has done for locals, including to contract with a local landscape company to cover up the old mulch on the children's playground with new mulch. There are so many questions and legitimate fears about how such a chemical catastrophe could happen and what can be done. How many of us recognize that this East Palestine derailment is just the most noxiously visible incident and that there are about 1,700 derailments annually and, according to USA Today, three derailments a day? 
According to USA Today, in the most recent year available, 2019, Norfolk Southern had 579 violations in cases that have been paid, with an average fine of less than $3,000. Who would have thought that the U.S. has averaged a chemical accident every two days so far in 2023, according to The Guardian, and that every year there's an average of 202 accidental chemical releases at facilities, according to EPA data? Who will wager when and where the next catastrophic train or other disaster turns a community into a toxic sacrifice zone? The East Palestine disaster didn't have to happen, but railroad companies have not opted to install heat detectors around the wheel carriages in trains or electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, safety measures that railway industry lobbied against vigorously. Norfolk Southern's president and CEO, Alan Shaw, answered evasively to congressional questions about new safety measures. For example, railroad companies don't want to pay for a two-person crew that is currently mandated by the railroad's labor contract, but federal law doesn't require two-person crews. Shaw recently said that he was not aware of any data that links crew size to safety. What happens when a lone conductor has a heart attack? What happens when the technology fails? When a bird strike damaged the engines on U.S. Air Flight 1549, Captain Sullenberger, known as Sully, and his co-pilot, John Wiley, landed the damaged plane on the Hudson River, a feat described as the miracle on the Hudson. How would that flight have ended without actual humans taking control? Mr. Shaw said during congressional hearings that he was deeply sorry, but he refused to commit specifically to changing railroad safety practices. How does a company like Norfolk Southern have $3.4 billion freed up to invest in its own company in order to drive up the value of its stocks? The company gets the money from the same disaster relief model that's used by regulators, the EPA, and industries. It's a regulatory and business model based on the reality that it's more cost-effective to companies to deal with the after-effects of pollution than to pay for preventing pollution. Why? because dealing with effects is relatively inexpensive when there are few regulations, little enforcement of the regulations that do exist, only slap on the wrist fines, and little legal accountability for poisoning the environment and the public health. And isn't EPA Administrator Regan supporting this cost-effective business model when only a couple weeks after the major environmental chemical disaster in East Palestine, he confidently said that the air and the water were safe, a position that protects Norfolk Southern's interests, but not necessarily the people of the area. The public has learned that vinyl chloride, benzene, and other related deadly chemicals are part of the deadly mix shrouding East Palestine. But we don't seem to find mention of who paid Norfolk Southern to haul these chemicals, or why the press, the EPA, Norfolk Southern, the Congress, and others aren't focusing on where the chemicals were coming from or going. Then again, why would Norfolk Southern President and CEO Shaw want to bite the chemical company's hands that feed his railroad company? Compared to the relative worth of Norfolk Southern, the legal and financial consequences of the East Palestine chemical derailment will likely be a slap on the wrist, so Norfolk Southern might as well take the whole rap. Mr. Shaw has worked with the chemical companies that pay for Norfolk Southern to haul their deadly substances, and over his nearly four decades of working for the railroad, Mr. Shaw served in various positions, including as first vice president of chemicals. Mr. Shaw just has to provide the public relations face of the company and to take the heat for Norfolk Southern, 
and indirectly for the petrochemical vinyl chloride industry, responsible for hiring Norfolk Southern to transport these chemicals. Then, when things cool down and the public forgets East Palestine, he'll likely be rewarded with a bonus for his discomfort and for his trouble. Mr. Shaw is a man of influence who also sits on the boards of a number of educational institutions, and according to the Cincinnati Inquirer, Norfolk Southern has made political contributions to Ohio officials for years, largely to Republicans, but also at times to Democrats. Not only does academic and political influence help protect chemical polluters, but oil and gas industries benefit from gaping loopholes for polluters. According to Earthworks, an oil and gas accountability project, the oil and gas industry benefit from significant exemptions from seven major environmental laws, including the Safe Water Drinking Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, known as Superfund, the National Environmental Policy Act, and the Toxic Release Inventory. So, according to relevant exemptions, oil and gas companies are permitted to pollute drinking water, air, streams, and rivers. Certain unsafe use and handling of toxic substances are permitted. Public input and environmental impact assessments and requirements can be weakened and diminished, and communities can be kept in the dark because companies may not be required to report what chemicals are being released. The oil and gas industry has little incentive to clean up its hazardous waste or to minimize leaks and spills because the definition of Superfund's hazardous substances excludes hazardous chemicals found in crude oil, petroleum, natural gas, natural gas liquids, liquefied natural gas, and synthetic gas usable for fuel. Do these exemptions apply to chemical products such as vinyl chloride that's made from petroleum? Shouldn't the chemical companies that produce vinyl chloride, such as Westlake Chemical or DuPont, and other affiliates of petroleum companies like Oxyvinyls of Occidental Petroleum, be responsible for the effects of their poison? These chemical companies produce materials for just about anything because of vinyl chloride's low cost and versatility in rigid and soft products. For PVC pipe, for building and construction, for roofing, siding, flooring, windows and doors automotive products, for sports clothing, fire protective clothing, awnings, tents, carpeting, playground equipment, and school supplies, including school backpacks, three-ring binders, and lunch boxes. So why should these companies be allowed to load up their chemicals on train cars and pass on the liability for their toxic products and byproducts to railroad and waste disposal facilities, and then to consumers and ultimately to taxpayers? Why? because to focus on first causes of the disaster would get to the heart of the darkness of our petrochemical age and the catastrophic cost of climate change, and why, according to the Financial Times, petrochemicals for plastics are the only major source of oil demand where growth is expected to accelerate. Will Norfolk Southern or DuPont or Westlake Chemical or whatever companies paid Norfolk Southern to haul those 11 derailed train cars help compensate for the damage to people's health, to environmentally redeem their properties as much as is possible, and their businesses? Why would these companies take any responsibility for the East Palestine chemical disaster if they aren't legally required to? 
And why should they hold themselves morally responsible when the EPA and other governing state bodies have paved the road to the chemical hell we are now facing as a nation and world community? They're only following the corrupted laws. According to the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hammonday, this East Palestine derailment, as all accidents we investigate, was 100% preventable. So if the East Palestine chemical disaster could have been prevented, why wasn't it? This question, and all the questions we just raised, and others essential to why communities such as East Palestine and countless communities across the country and around the globe have become poisoned sacrifice zones, why pollution is pervasive, why our water, air, soil, food, products, and physical bodies are now forever tainted, and why this insidious chemical age continues to be our civilization's undoing. In this Our Road to Walk, Then and Now podcast series, as we share our documented nearly 44-year history, we're attempting to address some of these fundamental questions as we examine how environmental protection has been derailed literally and figuratively by the very agency charged with protecting it, and why ordinary grassroots citizens, often known pejoratively as NIMBYs, not in my backyarders, and a minority of officials with personal integrity have stood up to the titans of poison and done their best to hold back the mighty forces of toxic aggression. In our next episode, we want to give some historical perspective on what we've experienced and learned firsthand concerning the EPA and its policies and the lack of its policies. So we're going to circle back to our own history, to September 28, 1982, during the fall PCB landfill protest movement when William Sanger, chief of the EPA Hazardous Waste Implementation Branch turned whistleblower, warned Warren County citizens at the John Graham High School about the inevitable failures of EPA-approved lined landfills. We're also going to share excerpts from Mr. Sanger's November 30, 1982 damning testimony soon after the six-week PCB protest movement ended, when he spoke as EPA's Chief of the Hazardous Waste Implementation Branch to the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on Natural Resources, Agricultural Research, and Environment, and to the Committee of Science and Technology. In this statement to committee members, Sanger described in documented details how unsafe hazardous waste disposal practices are based on EPA regulations which, instead of preventing disaster, knowingly allow it by promising to provide disaster relief. He pointedly illustrated this dark practice focusing on effects rather than causes by asking, can we expect EPA to carry this line of thinking into other areas by issuing gas masks as a means of regulating air pollution? We're going to focus on Mr. Sanger because he was in charge of writing the EPA's first standards for the treatment, storage, and disposal of hazardous waste. We're going to share how he saw those regulations were sabotaged, how he saw that landfills were not only dangerous and that there were safer ways of handling hazardous waste, how the very existence of cheap landfills prevents better methods from being used, and how the real cost of dumping is not borne by the producer of the waste or by the disposer, but by the people whose health and property values are destroyed and by the taxpayers who pay for the cleanup. We're going to share with you more insightful excerpts from Mr. Sanger's online 2013 book titled From the Files of a Whistleblower or How EPA Was Captured by the Industry It Regulated. 
We'll share the list of revolving door Republican and Democrat-appointed EPA administrators and officers who, beginning with EPA Administrator Ruckelhaus, have worked for or ended up working for major chemical and waste management companies. We'll share how EPA's conflicts of interest have resulted in the decimating of our environment and public health. We'll talk about the 1.5 million residents of Philadelphia recently warned in mass texts not to drink their water because 8,000 gallons or more of toxic latex were breached into the Delaware River, their drinking water source, and how an appropriate new verb for a chemical assault has been added to the environmental lexicon. According to Philadelphia area resident Alex Perlman, we've been East Palestined. In our next podcast episode, as we continue to go down this EPA disaster relief business model rabbit hole together, you'll see why we all have so much to learn and why there is so much consciousness raising to be done if we're going to join forces to hold polluters accountable and help protect and bring environmental justice to communities such as in East Palestine, Ohio, communities in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Texas, Indiana, California, and more. And if we're going to reduce pollution and carbon emissions and have any hope of averting climate catastrophe and leaving a habitable planet for our children and generations to come. Please join us next time on our road to walk then and now as we continue to shine a light on the causes of environmental destruction by the very agency charged with protecting it. Thanks for listening.